This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. John Arnold. Dr. Arnold is the Director of Respiratory Therapy and ECMO at Boston Children's Hospital, where he is also Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Arnold is also a Professor of Anesthesia and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. John, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, John, uh, it's been more than 20 years now since you reported in Critical Care Medicine in 1994 the results of your randomized controlled trial on high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in pediatric critical care. And I think it's uh, fair to say that since that time, uh, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation has become almost standard of care around the world for children with severe lung injury. How would you characterize the state of high-frequency ventilation today? What do we need to know about the literature? Before we hear from Dr. Arnold, we'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. Please first state your city and country location. The question is, do you use high-frequency oscillatory ventilation at your pediatric intensive care unit? And if so, do you use it as a primary or rescue therapy or both? Well, Jeff, in light of uh, several recent clinical trials, I do think it's timely to pause and uh, share with uh, you my view of the role of high-frequency ventilation in pediatric patients. So where were you and where were you on February 28, 2013? That was the release date for this issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. It contained a couple of interesting papers. Uh, this was the OSCAR trial, uh, which showed, uh, to really no one's surprise, that in a large multi-center trial of the use of high-frequency ventilation in adults, there was equivalence. High-frequency wasn't better, and it was not inferior. Uh, the article in that issue that got all the headlines was this one. This is the Oscillate trial. Uh, it uh, included several important clinical trialists and epidemiologists, as well as several high-frequency enthusiasts. Uh, it was an international trial. Uh, the, role, the goal was to enroll patients, adult patients, early in the course of ARDS. So you had to be enrolled within 72 hours of meeting the study eligibility criteria. Uh, to everyone's amazement, the trial was stopped for harm uh, after just over 500 patients were enrolled with a planned 1,200 patient accrual. So what happened? Well, first of all, we should look at the high-frequency protocol. Uh, those patients randomized to be treated with high-frequency oscillatory ventilation first received a recruitment maneuver off the device, 40 centimeters of water for 40 seconds. And then all patients managed with high-frequency began with a mean airway pressure of 30 centimeters of water. There was a careful algorithm by which mean airway pressure was manipulated in the high-frequency group. Uh, we started 30 centimeters of water and based on FiO2 and target blood gases, you slowly marched up or down the grid. Uh, if you look carefully at this grid, you can imagine how long it would take actually to get to 36 to 38 centimeters of water mean, which is often a mean airway pressure that we'll use in pediatric patients. The control arm was managed with the high PEEP algorithm from the ARDS network trial. 
So these are the phases of the study. There was a pilot study, uh, very common in a large multicenter uh, trial, uh, designed to work out some of the kinks in the high-frequency algorithm in particular. They stopped just short of 100 patients. There were no stopping rules. They then rolled into their uh, uh, prospective randomized controlled uh, part of the uh, study. Uh, the plan was to enroll 1,200 patients. There was an interim analysis plan for an 800 patient accrual. And then there were safety reviews at three, five, and 700 patients. So it turns out at that 300 patient safety review, which did not include mortality data, there were some adverse events seen in the high frequency group, adverse physiologic events. Uh, that required that at the next safety review, mortality be included. So when that analysis was done at just over 500 patients, it turned out that the high frequency group had a higher mortality. 47% uh, of the patients managed with high frequency actually died in the high frequency group, and that's a 12% absolute mortality increase over control. So for that reason, the trial was stopped. And the other outcomes also achieved statistical significance. Well, let's drill down on this a little bit. A little bit. How did this happen? Well, you can imagine a large international trial uh, involving many sites that some centers didn't have high-frequency experience. So if you look at centers by tertile of number of patients, of patients enrolled, in fact, there was no difference. All centers, whether you enroll just a few or whether you were in a high-enrolling center, uh, all high-frequency patients manifested a higher mortality. Similarly, if you look at degrees of oxygenation impairment by quartile of PF ratio, again, there was no difference ranging from the sickest to the less afflicted patients. High frequency appeared to increase mortality in all quartiles. Now let's do look at this a different way. So I've looked at the uh, oscillate data by EPIC. So the first 100 patients, it turns out the mortality in the high frequency group was 54% compared with 33% in the control group. That's a big number. And there's been a lot of debate where the pilot patients in this trial or in other trials should be included in the larger data set. Uh, as you know, in this trial, they were included. So then we move into the second phase of the study. And for the next 300 patients, the mortality rate in the high frequency group was 47% compared with 42% uh, in the control group, close. Then in the final uh, 200 patient group, uh, reaching a total of 500 patients, the overall mortality was 44% versus 29% in the control group. So when you look carefully at the patients enrolled by EPIC, high frequency appeared to increase mortality in all phases of the trial. What if we had excluded, or the investigators had excluded, those initial pilot patients? So this is a slide demonstrating the mortality in the high frequency group to be statistically higher even when you exclude uh, patients enrolled as part of the uh, pilot. In addition, there's a significant uh, unique feature to the oscillate trial, and that is it was an early intervention trial. So if you look at the duration of exposure to conventional mechanical ventilation uh, prior to enrollment, it really was significantly lower in the oscillate trial than in the MOAT trial, which was the adult, uh, the, the existing adult uh, prospective randomized study. Uh, and importantly, the mortality rate in the control group in the oscillate trial was very low. And I think it demonstrates actually that if you protocolize conventional mechanical ventilation and follow the ARDS network guidelines, you can greatly impact outcomes. 
We'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. Please first state your city and country location. The question is, have the results of the oscillate trial changed your practice in how you use high-frequency oscillatory ventilation? And in particular, are you using less high-frequency oscillatory ventilation on your patients with acute lung injury than you were before the publication of the oscillate trial? Uh, let's look at some other features of the oscillate trial that I think are unique. Importantly, as I mentioned, everyone in the high-frequency arm started at a mean aortic pressure of 30 centimeters of water. This is really the only trial that's done it that way. Uh, our pediatric trial and the MOAT trial, which was modeled after ours, uh, based the initial mean airway pressure on high frequency uh, according to what mean airway pressure you require during conventional mechanical ventilation. And we chose a number of five centimeters, as did the uh, MOAT investigators. The duration of high frequency uh, exposure in the oscillate trial was very short. A, a median of three days of high frequency ventilation was provided to those patients randomized. And you can argue that's a pretty small dose of a potentially lung protective intervention. And similarly, if you look at the mean airway pressures in the high frequency treated patients at day three, it was 26 centimeters of water in the oscillate trial compared with 28 centimeters of water in the MOAT trial. So again, there's a suggestion that patients were exposed to high frequency for too short a period of time and potentially to not enough mean airway pressure. So was it the device, was it the protocol? Uh, I think one important con conclusion of this trial is that primary use of high frequency aiming to intervene early, in fact, is not uh, appropriate. Uh, in pediatrics, as you know, we use the oscillator as a salvage therapy after a failed exposure to conventional mechanical ventilation. Sustained inflations off a high-frequency device may not be effective. Realize that however you inflate the lung, if it's off device, as soon as you connect the patient to the uh, high-frequency device, there's loss of uh, recruitment. So, Recruitment off device may not be effective at all. As I mentioned, I believe that the first mean airway pressure on a high-frequency device should be individualized based on the patient's lung mechanics, which can be uh, guesstimated by uh, quantifying how much the mean airway pressure was on conventional mechanical ventilation prior to transition. And finally, what really does remain unexplained in the oscillate trial is why didn't the high-frequency patients have a significant improvement in oxygenation manifested by PF ratio, uh, and why do they have greater hemodynamic instability? Another trial has gained a lot of attention. It's published uh, from our friends uh, participating in the virtual PICU. Uh, it was a database study, and uh, they used the virtual PICU database system. Uh, and the strength of the study, I think, really, is that it included almost 10,000 patients uh, overall. So these investigators sought to compare outcomes in patients managed with high frequency versus those managed with conventional mechanical ventilation. And here on the left, you see the variables uh, that were used in a matched analysis. So there's a high frequency versus conventional comparison, and there was an early use of high frequency versus conventional comparison. Uh, what they showed uh, in their unmatched analysis was not surprisingly that high frequency ventilation patients had a higher mortality. I don't think that's surprising to anybody. However, when they matched patients for severity of illness, in theory, they showed again that the high-frequency managed patients had a higher mortality. So, like the oscillate trial, there's a suggestion, perhaps, that 
high-frequency ventilation may be injurious, not lung protective. And this was also seen in the group managed with early use of high-frequency ventilation in this trial. Well, it's all about the database and the propensity score, isn't it? So these are the variables that were actually used to match the high-frequency patients to those managed with conventional mechanical ventilation. Age, weight, sex, use of defibrillator, uh, CPR, et cetera, et cetera, heart rate, blood pressure, one number from day one of admission, and then finally a PIM2 and a PRISM3 score were used in theory to risk adjust the outcomes. Uh, they showed that ICU stay and duration of mechanical ventilation in, a different to, in addition to mortality will prolong in those patients managed uh, with high frequency ventilation. So they concluded that uh, those patients managed with the oscillator had worse outcomes similar to recently published studies in adults. So this paper appeared two to three months after the oscillate trial and it really created a boom in the world of high frequency ventilation. Two studies potentially showing harm in patients managed with high frequency ventilation. Well, we've taken apart the oscillate trial. Let's take apart this virtual PICU study a little bit. What's missing from this propensity score? Well, there were no blood gas data. There was a day one PO2 in the PRISM score, but there was no uh, physiologic information at the time of transition or time of use of high frequency ventilation. Uh, there are no ventilator data. There's not a plateau pressure, there's not a mean airway pressure, there's not a PEEP to compare the patients managed with conventional ventilation versus those who failed ve uh, conventional ventilation and were managed with high frequency. And finally, the use of inotropes, sedatives, and neuromuscular blocking agents, all of which have been shown in some studies to impact outcomes, were not quantified in this score. So I believe that the publication of this study, in fact, leads to more confusion than answers. Remember, the PIM and PRISM scores are admission scores calculated on day one. Uh, if you look at the uh, data set, just under 10% of patients in their data set, almost 10,000 patients, were managed with high frequency. Not surprising. I think the number in our center is close to that because we use high frequency ventilation in pediatric patients uh, as a secondary intervention. So the theme I'm trying to establish here is that in their database, although they weren't able to demonstrate it, those patients managed with high frequency were in fact sicker than the patients managed with conventional mechanical ventilation. One last trial, which interestingly just appeared a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I'd make some slides, is a meta-analysis, yet another meta-analysis of all the uh, studies of high-frequency ventilation. Seven trials were included in this analysis. They excluded uh, two pediatric trials, so this is an adult meta-analysis. Uh, here's Steve Deardack's trial. Again, mean airway pressure in the high-frequency managed patients was adjusted to the mean airway pressure required during conventional mechanical ventilation, uh, as was done in several of the other trials uh, in this meta-analysis. So here's the uh, forest plot uh, showing that in-hospital mortality uh, tended to be higher in the patients managed with high frequency, not statistically significantly so in the pooled data. And you can see the big outlier here is in fact the oscillate trial, which showed, as we've just gone through, uh, an incredible increase in mortality in those patients managed with high frequency. Uh, there it is. Uh, and then again, uh, refractory hypoxemia was better managed uh, in this meta-analysis by those patients managed with high frequency. So I think everyone uh, has been uh, led to the conclusion that in the patients with refractory hypoxemia on a conventional ventilator, the oscillator will at least improve uh, oxygenation efficiency. And that was shown in this meta-analysis as well. So these investigators concluded something that I think is completely appropriate. 
High frequency should not be used uh, routinely in adult patients with acute respiratory distress uh, as a primary ventilator strategy. And in fact, that's how we use it in pediatric patients. I'll tell you, Jeff, that after that uh, 1994 uh, paper that you mentioned, uh, the principals involved in that uh, multicenter trial got together. And we talked about doing an early intervention study. The thought is, if high frequency is lung protective, let's design a study, as the oscillate investigators did, that intervenes early in the course of lung injury. And you know what happened? None of us could uh, satisfy ourselves that it was a good thing to give up on conventional ventilation and, in particular, spontaneous ventilation. Realize that we still, when we transition to high frequency, have to use muscle relaxants, deep sedation. And way back in the mid-90s, we were not comfortable doing that. So this study, the oscillate study, has never been done in pediatric patients because we uh, initially and to this day believe that high-frequency ventilation is a salvage rescue modality and should really only be used after a failed trial of conventional ventilation. So John, that's a, a very helpful overview of those three studies. Um, so stated another way, as you've said it, um, because it's been primarily used as a rescue therapy, any attempt even to acuity adjust is fraught with uh, concern because there's an inherent selection bias that in a way high-fi, uh, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation is in a way a risk factor for not easily measured uh, advanced uh, disease, acute lung injury, and risk of death that despite the attempts of these studies to adjust for that, is, um, is still fraught with uh, difficulty. Is that a, yes. another way of saying that? Yes. I, I think all of us believe that the sickest patients in our ICU are those attached to the oscillator. And I think it's been difficult, uh, particularly in a database trial, to capture that. But let's look at the oscillate trial. Because that was, uh, these are serious investigators. Uh, and they did not design this trial to show that high-frequency ventilation increased mortality. So was it device? Was it strategy? Was it target population? And I think we've touched on this a bit. Target population is important. So in adults, as a primary modality, uh, high-frequency ventilation doesn't work. A tr you could make an argument that a second follow-on study ought to be done using high-frequency ventilation as a salvage modality. Strategy. I've talked about the awkwardness of their algorithm. It took a very long time, potentially, to get the median airway pressures in the high 30s, which a sick pediatric or adult patient may well require to open the lung. And finally, device. What is it the device? Is there something about the oscillator, particularly in adult patients, that in fact may augment lung injury, may enhance translocation of endotoxin from uh, the pulmonary space to the vascular space and increase hemodynamic instability? That's how some have explained, in fact, the greater use of uh, inotropes in the high-frequency group in the oscillate trial. I don't think so. I think there's abundant animal data, neonatal data, and some pediatric data that in fact high frequency is equivalent or in fact uh, marginally better than a conventional ventilator in terms of providing lung protection. So John, that's a, a terrific synopsis of the most recent literature, but I'm sure I speak for my, our colleagues around the world uh, when I ask the following question. In your practice, you know, take us through how you use high frequency oscillatory ventilation. What are the steps in transitioning and how do you actually adjust the device? I was hoping you'd ask me that question. So, if you look at a list of the factors that have been well-established to be associated with ventilator-induced lung injury, to me, it looks like an advertisement for using high-frequency ventilation. Lung recruitment, maximize it. 
prevent collapse, that's atelic trauma. Minimize stretch, that's volume trauma. End inspiratory overdistension, barotrauma. Uh, that sounds like high frequency. And these are old data from our laboratory that you've seen many times showing the peak to trough pressure amplitude in an animal uh, at the proximal, mid-trachea, and then in the alveolar space. And there's incredible dampening of the uh, amplitude of the pressure signal as you move into the lung. This doesn't happen during conventional mechanical ventilation. So the oscillator takes advantage of this and can deliver very high mean airway pressures, inadequate alveolar ventilation with very small uh, changes in pressure amplitude in the lung. So how do we use it? Well, the important thing uh, is to make sure the lung is open. And this uh, schematic, this cartoon of a pressure volume curve is very helpful to keep in mind when you're using an oscillator. Now during conventional mechanical ventilation, we talk about the lower inflection point and setting PEEP above P-flex, which is another name for the lower inflection point. And generally, we're on the inspiratory limb of the pressure volume curve. With high frequency ventilation use, uh, the construct is completely different. What we want to do is achieve an open lung and I'll share with you shortly how I think that is best done. And then we allow the lung to settle on the deflation limb of the pressure volume curve and take advantage of hysteresis produced by the elastic recoil of the chest wall and uh, surfactant. Uh, and we settle down somewhere on the deflation limb of the pressure volume curve. Now, how do you know when you're on the deflation limb? So these are some interesting data that Tom Brazelton did uh, while he was with us here in Boston, the animal lab. We took uh, a, uh, an animal and we put them on an oscillator and progressively increase their mean airway pressure and then progressively decrease their mean airway pressure. Uh, and we also simultaneously measured oxygenation by PO2 and uh, lung volume by an impedance measurement of global lung volume change, the respiratory device. And to our utter amazement, when you plot those two data sets on top of each other, they're virtually superimposable, meaning that as the lung opens, it oxygenates better. And as the lung closes on the deflation limb, oxygenation efficiency deteriorates. So it turns out that at the bedside, we have a beat-to-beat -beat monitor of oxygenation. Remember that we're using high frequency as a salvage mode. These patients on a conventional ventilator are failing. They're desaturated. Their saturations are in the mid-80s. That's the steep portion of the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. So any change in PO2 will produce a direct change in saturation. So you can use the bedside pulse oximeter to uh, assess the lung as it opens, presumably as you increase mean airway pressure, and then as you wean mean airway pressure, if derecruitment occurs, then in fact oxygenation efficiency will again be compromised. So here's that uh, elderly study that you alluded to and I've alluded to and published in 1994, and here's how we did it in that trial, and this is how we still do it today. We start with an FIO2 of one. These are patients failing conventional mechanical ventilation. We set the mean airway pressure five to seven centimeters higher than used on conventional ventilation. Uh, we start with a frequency of somewhere between five and 10 hertz, lower frequencies for bigger patients. We always initiate high frequency with an ID ratio of one to two. And then uh, using that construct that I've just shown you, we, we increase mean airway pressure until we're able to achieve adequate saturation on an FIO2 of 0.6. And that's our definition of an open lung. And with years of experience now, we can achieve an open lung within an hour. Now, I will say if you're beginning a high-frequency program in your ICU, it's a little scary to put a 10-kilogram child on a 35-centimeter mean on any device, particularly one that makes a lot of noise and is moving at 6 hertz.
but in fact, with uh, practice uh, and with careful attention to hemodynamics, uh, opening the lung uh, using aggressive increases in mean airway pressure is quite effective. Uh, these are data from the trial showing that the mean airway pressure in the high-frequency group, that's the top graph, open circles of high-frequency high patients, was significantly higher throughout the entire first 72 hours uh, in the trial. Uh, the mean went to 27 centimeters of water overall. So we're talking about significant increases in mean airway pressure to achieve an open lung. And as you know, this was a crossover trial. It was imperfect, but we did show that barotrauma, defined as requirement for oxygen at 30 days, uh, was significantly uh, reduced in those patients managed with high-frequency ventilation. Now, some other interesting data from that study done post hoc. We took all patients who survived, and we divided them to those who survived with chronic lung disease, those who survived without chronic lung disease. And it turns out, uh, not to our complete surprise, that those who survived with chronic lung disease were exposed to a conventional ventilator for significantly longer periods of time than those who survived without chronic lung disease. And it turns out that at 72 hours, you get a nice break point. The relative risk, if you're gonna survive, uh, of surviving with chronic lung disease when you're managed with an oscillator increases almost 25-fold if you're on a conventional ventilator for longer than three days. Similarly, uh, once you're on an oscillator, the oxygenation index can be very helpful in determining uh, whether you're going to live or whether you're not. So again, this is a post-hoc analysis from that pediatric trial. The closed circles are those patients who survived. The open circles are those who did not. And this is the plot of the oxygenation index. FiO2 times mean airway pressure divided by PO2. If you're going to survive on an oscillator, it turns out your OI must decrease significantly over the first 72 hours. The non-survivors in this graph are in the open circles. Their OI stayed the same or rose during the course of the use of high-frequency ventilation. It turns out, again, using two-by-two uh, two analysis, that the differences are statistically significant, differences in OI between survivors and non-survivors at 24 hours. Now, honestly, I think most of us, even now, at 24 hours, are still fiddling with the oscillator and trying to individualize the settings to the patient at hour 24. But look at the graph. At 48 hours, the differences in OI between survivors and non-survivors are even greater. So at 48 hours, you can decide on an oscillator whether you're winning or whether you're losing. And if you're losing, meaning your OI is the same or rising, it's time to think of something else. And we can talk about what something else is. Uh, in our center, as you know, it generally is consideration of extracorporeal support. Incidentally, this OI uh, difference between survivors and non-survivors has been shown by other investigators. So this is the MOAT trial. Their graph is virtually superimposable to ours. That is, those who died had steady uh, or increasing OIs compared to those who survive. So how do I use high frequency? First of all, as I think I've emphasized, we are quite fond of conventional ventilation and in particular spontaneous ventilation. And we, as you know, have lots of patients breathing spontaneously on very high peeps. Uh, so first of all, you, spontaneous ventilation has to have failed. So as I just mentioned, the OI is also very helpful in deciding when to declare failure of conventional ventilation. And at 72 hours on a conventional ventilator, you need to make the decision based on the data uh, in survivors that we showed in our trial. The incidence of chronic lung disease 
will increase significantly if you're managed with a conventional ventilator for longer than 72 hours before first use of high frequency. And then finally, uh, if your OI is greater than 42 uh, and it's rising over the first 48 hours uh, of high frequency use, that represents failure of high frequency ventilation and predicts uh, mortality uh, very carefully, uh, very accurately. In fact, uh, an OI of 42 is associated with a, at, at 48 hours, a relative increase of mortality of something like 20 to 22 times. So these are the parameters. Three days of conventional mechanical ventilation max, two day, failing, two days of high frequency ventilation max, and if you're failing that high frequency intervention, it's time to think about other things. And again, as guided by uh, oxygenation index. Yes. At the moment, it really is the best surrogate uh, to assess uh, overall global lung function. We are working, as you know, on other ways to identify lung protective ventilation. But at the moment, uh, we really don't have insight into what uh, actually is going on throughout uh, the lung when we're trying to improve lung protection. So John, um, you're transitioning a patient over from conventional uh, ventilation to high frequency. Take us through it. Do you do a recruitment maneuver? If so, how? Okay. Uh, I focus a lot on oxygenation, and I think the initial transition is all based on oxygenation. Uh, we set the power, which determines the delta pressure, based on a term we call the chest wiggle factor. So if the chest is wiggling, then we're happy that we're providing reasonable degrees of alveolar ventilation. It turns out that during the initial transition, we don't really care what the CO2 is. As you know, in many organ systems, uh, in, in models of organ systems, uh, hypercapnia and acidosis is in fact pr uh, protective, it's cytoprotective. So the initial uh, focus is on oxygenation and not on ventilation. We typically perform a recruitment maneuver on device. Generally, patients who've been failing conventional ventilation have been handbagged, have been su subjected to sustained inflations. So generally, you have some knowledge of how they will respond to recruitment. And you have some knowledge of what airway pressure uh, delivered manually will lead to lung recruitment and improved oxygenation. So typically, on the device, we will go to that airway pressure. And if we have no idea, we'll start five centimeters higher than we were in conventional, and we'll steadily increase. And we often will end at 38 centimeters of water. Uh, that somewhere between 38 and 40 is the practical upper limit of the 3100A device. Uh, and we'll stay there. Recruitment is a time-dependent phenomenon. And it may be that it will take 15, 20, 30 minutes uh, at a opening airway pressure to establish full recruitment. So the first goal is to open the lung to get the FiO2 to 0.6. And again, as you've said, this is not done through um distending the lung open with a Mapleson circuit. This is done by connecting uh, the hi-fi to the endotracheal tube and using the mean airway pressure as the means by which you're generating recruitment. Correct. I, we, we began, as you remember, with manual recruitment maneuvers. And we, we did all sorts of interesting things with clamps to try to maintain a distending pressure as we transition to high frequency. I just don't think that's as effective as opening the lung on the device. Now. Um, You've transitioned the patient to high frequency. Uh, now, I'm curious to know, what are the sequence of steps that you follow to promote oxygenation? And in particular, in the initial phase, as you've just transitioned the patient over, is this adequate as a rule of thumb, that if the saturations fall and the systolic blood pressure falls right away, that all things being equal, you've probably over-distended the lung, whereas if the saturations fall but the systolic blood pressure and heart rate stay reasonably stable, 
uh, you're probably still under-recruited. Is that a fair rule of thumb? Yeah, so let's talk a bit about hemodynamics. That's important. When we began our uh, pediatric trial back in the 90s, uh, we were terrified of potential adverse hemodynamic effects. My gosh, you're going to take this 10-kilogram child, put them on a mean airway pressure of 35 centimeters of water. Who in the world knows what the end inspiratory pressure is, but it's higher than 35 centimeters of water. You're going to simply crush the heart. There will be no venous return. Well, interestingly, we did not see adverse hemodynamic effects. And in fact, in a number of patients, this is actually unpublished, we had PA catheters. And remember those days when we actually measured cardiac output? And in fact, we did not have uh, negative effects on cardiovascular performance. So I think that if you use the five to seven centimeter higher than unconventional transition rule, in most patients, you will avoid adverse hemodynamic effects. Now, we've all managed the world's most septic human who happens to have lung disease as well. And we've seen exactly what you described. That is, you transition, their SAT falls, and their blood pressure falls. Yes, as you've implied to me, that suggests that uh, you're augmenting uh, uh, negative cardiopulmonary interaction and your mean airway pressure is simply too high. What would I do in that setting? Again, uh, I would go back to conventional, optimize cardiovascular performance. The patient might, requ might require additional fluid. The patient might require inotropic, inotropic support. And I would then, again, try to transition high frequency at a lower mean airway pressure. Truth be told, my little algorithm to increase until the lung opens and oxygenates and gets you to NEFO 2.6 does lead to overdistension of some patients. It turns out in pediatric patients, generally, the right ventricle uh, takes a joke pretty well. And in fact, if you transiently increase pulmonary vascular resistance by virtue of overdistension, that cardio, global cardiovascular performance doesn't significantly suffer. And as the lung opens, you need to recognize that and think about weaning mean airway pressure to minimize the time of overdistension. So I do think our algorithm probably produces overdistension in some percentage of patients, less than 20%, I would guess. But if you're ready to use oxygenating efficiency to identify an open lung, then it's time to decrease mean airway pressure. Now, another important point, and I think this is uh, really brought home to me as a uh, clinician and as an investigator by the oscillate trial. If the lung is not open, the oscillator is not lung protective. And uh, before you increase the delta pressure, the power to increase the delta pressure, uh, because of hypercapnia, you need to ask yourself, have I gone high enough on the mean airway pressure? Is the lung open? There's now a new uh, toy in town, that's a 3100B. And in fact, the 3100B simply provides larger piston displacement and can generate larger tidal volumes. And my worry is that we're gonna put patients, larger patients, on a 3100B, not adequately open the lung with mean airway pressure, and address uh, hypercapnia by providing larger delta pressures. And in fact, we're not gonna be lung protective, we're gonna be lung injurious. We'd like to turn again to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. Please first state your city and country location. And the question is, what guides your initial choice of frequency when transitioning to high frequency oscillatory ventilation? Additionally, what factors lead to frequency increases and to frequency decreases? We're back now with Dr. Arnold. At what level of uh, hypercapnia do you get concerned? Um, because as you've noted, uh, we've come a long way in 20 years on how we think about uh, uh, CO2 clearance in the acutely injured lung. 
Great question. So there are patients whose lung is open with an oscillator and who continue to manifest hypercapnia. And uh, the, CO, the absolute CO2 itself doesn't interest me too much. We, these, many of these patients have chronic lung disease and have chronic uh, hypercapnia. When the pH gets near 7.2, that's when I think it really is time to think about improving alveolar ventilation. From an acute respiratory acidosis. Correct. So uh, suggestions to do that. Uh, you, we've discussed increasing the delta pressure. That will increase uh, the delivered tidal volume. Realize that in several studies, tidal volume uh, increase uh, is significantly affected by changes in frequency. So in fact, if you decrease frequency, the delivered tidal volume at the same delta pressure is much higher. So be conscious of that, because step one would be to increase the delta pressure by turning the power knob up. Step two, if you have refractory hypercapnia, is to decrease frequency. Now this is a little counterintuitive. We all remember minute ventilation equals frequency times uh, tidal volume. And on a conventional ventilator, if you decrease frequency, then your minute ventilation is going to decrease. Well, it turns out that on the oscillator, as you decrease frequency and directly reduce minute ventilation, you greatly increase tidal volume. And the relationship between tidal volume and minute volume during high-frequency ventilation is not linear. Minute ventilation equals frequency times tidal volume to the one-point-something power, something under two, between one and two. So any manipulation of the tidal volume will greatly increase minute volume, which is why I would start with a delta pressure, and then, uh, and I'm not going to give you an absolute number. When you're at a number you're uncomfortable with, then it's time to decrease frequency uh, to improve alveolar ven ventilation. Now, the flip side of that is also interesting. Around the world, we've seen in a recent uh, survey study, uh, there's broad recognition that frequency is directly uh, impacting tidal volume. Uh, and people are using much higher <laughs> frequencies now than they used uh, 20 years ago in our study. So once the lung is open and you're happy, uh, I suggest that you use the highest frequency you can while maintaining adequate alveolar ventilation. So we're now using frequencies of near 10 hertz in patients that we used to use typically frequencies of 5 hertz. But that's targeting a pH more than a... Uh absolute uh, CO2, is that correct? Yes, I think that's the appropriate way to deal with uh, uh, CO2 clearance in the acute setting. Now, when you're talking about weaning the patient back to conventional ventilation and extubating, and then, then a CO2 of 110, which we have seen, uh, will be a little bit annoying. But in the acute phase, I would not worry so much about uh, pCO2, uh, and I worry more about the pH. Now, the next question I think you're going to ask me is cough leak. So uh, one of my colleagues in the adult critical care world uh, spoke broadly uh, in the past about uh, maximizing washout by letting the cuff down and allowing there to be a leak around the endotracheal tube. Uh, that's never been our practice, as you know. And my worry is that if you let the cuff down, these patients are sick. If you uh, induce cuff leak to improve CO2 clearance, in fact, you're going to de-recruit the lung. So my worry is that when you're frustrated by the CO2 that's in the 90s uh, and you do think the lung is open, but you're trying to adjust uh, the tidal volume and the frequency to improve CO2 clearance, if you let the cuff down, you're going to have to start all over again because you're going to de-recruit the lung. John, uh, this has been a wonderful overview of um, really this, the literature up to this moment. Uh, but equally so, I, I know I speak for my colleagues uh, 
both as a colleague of yours over 25 years and for, for colleagues around the world, um, hearing you guide us step by step on how you think about using it at the bedside um, is uh, really valuable. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. Pleasure. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.